uh, what a great privilege to be here to share God's word with you. And um, uh, I know that as you go through this transition of time, as my good friend, I've known Lance uh, for over 30 years. We go way back and I've seen, you know, his family grow and he's seen mine grow together and I've seen him through some ups and downs in life as the Lord has been faithful to him. Um, and uh, you are releasing someone that will be used uh, for the kingdom of God in other places and in other ways. But I know that you are dear to his heart. Even in the conversation before some of this became public, he and I talked about it. And you were, it's evident that you were in his heart. Um, and I don't know if anyone else has said that. Surely others have said it. But I say it to you. And it was a difficult decision. But in the end, he believes that it was the Lord's decision. And in God's beautiful providence that um, Paul would be able to come um, and, as you officially have to make that decision, to come and share his life with you and the Word of God with you. And even recently talking with him about uh, his heart and his desire for ministry as we were at the seminary chatting a bit. And the Lord has been good um, to this place. And I pray that you understand that and respond to it properly, because ultimately, even if it weren't for Lance or for Paul, um, one thing that we have that should make us uh, surely motivated is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is superior to all, is he not? Because if I don't have any of them, um, I have Jesus Christ. And that is really the focus of my message today, a beautiful picture of God and God's graciousness to you, to us. Uh, The message is entitled, Encouraged, by an eminently gracious God. Encouraged by an eminently gracious God, Isaiah 57 and 15. Uh, When I was asked to preach, I decided that I would preach uh, this message, this text, because I knew uh, that it would benefit me. Now, initially you hear something like that. Wait a minute, that sounds a bit strange. That sounds even selfish. You decided to preach a message because it would benefit you. And I say to that, is that selfish? Is it not? I say perhaps there's a yes and no to that answer or to that question. Why? Because I believe that messages that anyone would communicate from God's word, uh, they're going to gain their greatest potential as they have impacted the speaker, as they've impacted the man of God, as they've impacted the pastor. And this text surely does that for me. Uh, It stimulates my heart to think right thoughts about God and high thoughts about God. And in one sense, when a preacher is delivering God's word, uh, it should have had its effect on his heart before delivering to the people of God. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And in one sense, the listeners simply come along for a ride. So this morning, I want you to journey with me. And in this journey, I've decided that we'll preach, or I will preach, that is, one verse that confronts our pride. It challenges self-sufficiency. And I think it shatters any thought of self-deification, but it surely encourages our dependence on the grace of God. Uh, This verse, Isaiah 57 and 15, is a reminder of God's patience, God's abundant mercy, And absolutely, it is a reminder of God's faithfulness. Therefore, I want you to listen this morning and allow the Spirit of God to even, as it should be every morning, really, 
Um, it should be every evening, every time we open the Word of God, every time we engage, we engage with the Lord, I want it to conform our hearts. Hopefully it will shape your will. And at times, the Word of God must confront even our pride. But then our soul should be encouraged with this lofty word that we receive from Isaiah. And simply let me read it. And it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell, I think the ESV says, I inhabit um, this high and lofty place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let me tell you a reason why I've even chosen that title, encouraged by an eminently gracious God. And I mean, eminence in the sense of his presence. Um, When we think about Emmanuel, God with us, he is with us. We see him with us in this text. We see God's transcendence. God is other. He is different than us. He is distinct from us. He is outside of time. This is his transcendence. But we also see his eminence. He is, yes, holy, and he is high, and he is glorious, and he is mighty. But the text tells us here he is also with. He is also with. And so that should encourage your heart. And it is a very lofty verse And we're just going to spend our time here. Of course, we will go to other places to make sure we understand it in its context. And even when we think about the context of this verse, we have to think about the context of Isaiah. What is happening in the book of Isaiah? From chapters 1 to 39, we see that there is no righteousness. Therefore, God is going to judge the nations. The the nations have fought against the Lord Uh, The people of God are astray. They're involved in idol worship. And therefore, God says there will be judgment not only on Israel, but there will be judgment on the nations. And then if we look at Isaiah 40 to 55, uh, there's this great theme that's in Isaiah 40 to 55 that communicates that we should know that God will graciously provide. Yes, Israel, you have been set aside and you have been cast away into exile into Assyria. And now Isaiah talks about in chapter 40, there is going to be an exile for uh, the tribes of Judah because now you will go to Babylon, but yet God will be gracious to you. He will bring you back. He will restore you. Despite your sinfulness and your covenant treachery, God will be gracious. Isn't that not a great message? I mean, where would we be without the grace of God? (laughs) All of us in some measure have been guilty of, as a matter of fact, I shouldn't say in some measure, in every measure, in great measure, we have been guilty of covenant treachery, have we not? You say, how so? From the moment of your birth, you began covenant treachery. Because each individual is created to be a worshiper of the living God. Do we agree with that? And prior to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, you were not that. You ran away from God, therefore you were violators of a covenant. Then in chapters 56 to 66, we see here is the proof of God's resolution to provide. He will bring this about. Israel will be restored. The Babylonians will be defeated. The nations will be put aside. 
and God will restore worship to his people. He will gather them again, and all creation itself will come and worship before the Lord. And in the midst of all of these things that are happening in the book of Isaiah, we see a voice that goes forth. And what is that voice? It's the voice of the servant. It goes forth. He will succeed. And what was read earlier from chapters 52 and 53 is essentially that message, my servant will succeed. And because he has shown, he has demonstrated that he is sufficient, he will be exalted and lifted up. And then in chapter 55, there's a great invitation. A great invitation goes forth. And if you were to notice chapter 55 of Isaiah, and what is this invitation? It is one of the most startling texts in one sense in Scripture because it tells us in Isaiah 55 that salvation can come without money and without cost because this is what he says in Isaiah 55. Just notice it even for a moment. What does he say? Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Cost, because he says, why are you spending your money on that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Listen, verse 3, that you may live. How is it possible without money and without cost to come? And what is interesting about Isaiah 55, if you were to note, it starts off here, it says, ho, that is, let me get your attention. But if you were to look through the rest of Isaiah, you would see this same small, very Hebrew word that is translated woe. You remember chapters 1 to 39, it is woe, it is woe, it is woe, it is woe, woe to the nations. I'm going to come in judgment. But here it changes, and it's a sense of expectation and even excitement and anticipation and invitation that you can come and you can be saved without money and without cost. But of course, but of course, there was a cost. And that's Isaiah 52 and 53. The price was paid for us, amen? So we can come, and it is indeed free. Then we come to Isaiah 56 and 57. And what, is, what do we see in Isaiah 56 and 57? It really is a reminder that man is totally inept. It's saving himself. Because we see in Isaiah 56 and 57, this reminder, you remember, as it perhaps has often been quoted, and rightfully so, that our righteousness is like what? They are like what? Would you remember it? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. But yet, God is gracious. Then if we were to look at uh, the text, it tells us uh, what has happened here. In verses 1 to 8 in chapter 56, man's purpose is to be in covenant with God, but yet they have chosen otherwise. Because he says in verse 4 of chapter 56, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. These people I will look to. We see that in verses 1 to 8. And then really verse 9 all the way through chapter 57, 13, we see man's failure to achieve this purpose because of his sin. 
He cannot attain God. He cannot please God. He cannot gain salvation because of inherent sin. And then in chapter 57, getting closer to our text, notice verse 11. I'll read it. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but you will, it, they will not profit you. You will cry out. Let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them away, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. So what does God do here? He reminds Israel that you'll serve these idols, but these idols could never deliver you. They are impotent. Therefore, you will be judged. And what is he saying? Only I can save you. How is it possible that these foolish, handcrafted gods are worthy of worship? They are not. And then notice, if you will, verse 13 in particular, notice it says, the challenge to rely on these false gods. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, this sarcastic tone. There's going to come a need when you have a need of a savior. Then cry out and see what those idols will do for you, nothing. Their wind, they will be carried away. But those who take refuge in me, they will find an inheritance. Then verse 14 is really a bridge for us into verse 15. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. So here is the bridge. Uh, The people of God... Uh, They are serving idols. They are creating their own gods, but obviously they're impotent. And now here is a declaration, a cry, if you will, that they would build up. That is, make a way to God. Make a way to God. How can one reach God? God is so lofty and high. Notice verse 15. And what he's saying here, verses 15 and 16, although I am a God of eternity, my anger will not last forever. Because notice verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit will go faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. Now notice that the idols have no breath. God is the one that gives breath. Notice that the idols have a beginning and the end because they're created by man. But God says, I am an eternal God. And if I were to give you what is due, you would not stand. Therefore, grace is necessary. And I think we all realize that, don't we? Where would we all be without the grace of God? I mean, if you were to pause a moment, some of you who came to the Lord, perhaps uh, later in your life, and you can think about your life and what it was and the direction it was headed without the Lord Jesus Christ, where would you be without the intervention of grace? And to that, we should all say amen, should we not? (laughs) So he says, yes, I'm a God of eternity, but if you would turn to me, you can be saved. And this is really the message of 17 to 21. There is peace for the humble, but judgment for the haughty. Notice what he says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. 
I have seen his ways. I will heal him. I will heal him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Verse 19, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Notice verse 21. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked, but there is what? Salvation for the humble. Notice in the middle of these declarations of how men are sinful, that God says, I will heal, I will heal, I will, in fact, heal. So a highway is made. In Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, it talks about uh, making every way straight. Let's just turn there for a moment. Isaiah 40. Verses 3 to 5, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then, notice what it says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. We know in the New Testament, we say the application of that in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a voice, and that voice was John the Baptist. And he was declaring that the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and it will be revealed in the person of Christ. But what is interesting about how Isaiah communicates this, he says, make a way for the Lord. The Lord is coming to you. Christ came to us. But in Isaiah 57, it's make a way for the people, if you will. And that's also communicated in Isaiah 35 and 8, this highway of holiness that it's called. It's the people coming to the Lord, and it's the Lord coming to the people, and they meet, and salvation comes about. Um, I was, they mentioned that I was, I'm a graduate of the University of Cincinnati, and um, that some moons ago, um, where I was there on a football scholarship, and the Lord saved me there. The Lord opened my eyes. I thought I knew the Lord, but I was living a religious lie. I could give you the answers to salvation. I could walk you through the Romans road. I could tell you who Jesus Christ was intellectually. Uh, I would say that I believed in heaven. I believed in hell. I believed those who rejected Christ uh, were deserving of eternal separation I was living a religious life because I thought that I knew the Lord because I understood these things in my mind. And God intervened. And one day there at the University of Cincinnati, my eyes were opened. And that highway to me was open. And I could receive, and I did receive, salvation without money and without cost. But it required something is my recognition of my sinfulness, and we can say this as well. The only way that I was able to recognize my sinfulness was by the grace of God. One does not just wake up one day and say, I think I'll be saved. It doesn't happen that way, does it? No, it doesn't. And some of you in your testimony would testify to that, would it not? That most of us, we were running from the living God. And it required the grace of God to help us see that we were in fact blind. Israel is living a religious lie. And the only way Israel can be turned around is by divine intervention. It's not possible any other way. So then if we go back to verse 15, this provides the reason that God's promise is trustworthy. How do we know that it is without money and without cost? How do we know that if we turn, we will live 
because he is, his promises, in fact, are trustworthy. How do we know they're trustworthy? Because he's capable. Verse 15, he is high and exalted. He's willing. He dwells with those who respond to him. So we can say this, only a God who is transcendent and imminent can keep this promise of salvation. Now, having said that, let's look at this verse and we're going to divide it into three parts, three parts, three statements that I believe should encourage every believer. Uh, three statements that remind us that God is an eminently gracious God. And we can look at it this way. We should be encouraged by God's statement of his greatness. So be encouraged, God is a great God. Be encouraged by God's statement of his humility. Be encouraged, God is also a humble God. And we can also say, be encouraged by God's statement of his purpose. Be encouraged because look at God's purpose to save sinners. Number one, be encouraged by God's statement of his greatness. Notice what it says in verse 15. For thus says, for thus says, Yahweh speaks. Why is Yahweh speaking? Obviously he speaks that we might understand the authority of his words. And we might also say, it is Yahweh speaking because Israel's voice is muted. Israel's voice is muted because of their covenant treachery. They have no voice anymore. Because of their moral compromise, they are not to be listened to. They're not to be heard. And we would say that all society is suffering from that same condition, so therefore there must be a sense of authority, and that authority here is the Lord as he speaks. But we also see something else about his his greatness, his lofty character in dwelling. Notice what it says about his lofty character in dwelling. He is high and lifted up. And what's interesting about that phrase, high and lifted up, we only see it three times in the Old Testament, high and lifted up. And they're all in which book? What do you think? Isaiah. This lofty vision of God. God's holiness. Isaiah 6. He saw the Lord and he was what? High and lifted up. As was read earlier, Isaiah 52 and 13, and my servant shall be high and lifted up. And here in Isaiah 57, 15, God is a God that is high and lifted up. And this is obvious in comparison to mankind. If you were to look through chapter 40, and particularly 40 to 48, you see time and time again that it's a recognition of God's loftiness, his distinction, his transcendence, his glory. And even Isaiah 40, there's a clear reminder that the nations are just a drop in the bucket. The people are like grasshoppers. They are nothing to the living God. So this God is a great God that is high and lifted up. Turn with me to Isaiah 33. So we should be encouraged because consider the fact that we can have a relationship with a God that is so lofty and distinct and other than us. Isaiah 33, 5 and 6 says what? The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of our times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And what a treasure to now fear the Lord. All of us, before we came to Christ, we had no fear of God in our hearts. Now, some may say, but I was a religious person. I attended church. I read my Bible. 
I prayed, I volunteered my time, my efforts, I gave them my resources. Um, but that does not mean that you have any fear of God. A person who fears God recognizes God's standard. They recognize that they don't meet it. They recognize that they're astray and they make things right. When we hear the voice of the Lord, we should fear. Now, before coming to Christ, you can't hear that voice. That's why you did not fear. God was calling. And it's rare, I suppose it might happen, and I've heard occasions where it does happen, that the first time a person hears the gospel, they come to Christ. But I ask you a question, a quick survey right now. How many of you heard the gospel multiple times before you came to the Lord? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and God was speaking. It was, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, but you ignored it, did you not? You ran the other direction from it. But in that moment of time, God decided that he would be eminently gracious to you, and he opened your eyes. You did not hear the voice of the Lord. Um, I was shared with someone recently. Uh, it mentioned that we have five children. Uh, well, they're all adult age now. And I do qualify that adult age. Because uh, we, we get into these conversations. You, I'm 18 now. Okay. Yeah, and? Okay, good. You, you're fairly good at math. You know that 18 comes after 17, and, and 18 is before 19. But other than that, it means nothing until you start to handle your life responsibly. Amen? And every parent said amen and again. <laughs> right? 18 is just a number. And I've said this the exact words to my kids, all of them. 18 is simply a number. You might be an adult at 16. My dad, my opinion, was an adult long before 18 when he was taking care of his family, when he was getting on his bicycle and delivering groceries before and after school. And I know some 58-year-olds who are still not an adult. Are you agree with that as well? Don't let it be yourself. <laughs> All right. So this voice that's heard, and I, at times, and I'm, I'm, what, what's, your, what's your point, Hargrove? Um, that my voice is often used to get their attention. And my voice carries fairly well. <laughs> and there have been times, and Joanna will say to me, hey, she's cooking the meal downstairs, and she's, everybody come to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm next to you, and I'm not even sure if I should come to dinner yet, Right? And she says, Carl, can you get everyone? Hey, everyone, it's time to eat. <laughs> you hear scrambling and things happening. They heard the voice, amen? They heard the voice. On a spiritual level, some of you lived your life and you did not hear the voice of God. But should we not be thankful? Should our hearts not be encouraged? that this eminently gracious God decided, the one who dwells in eternity, the one who's in a, a high and lofty place, decided that I will invade your life because without my divine intervention, you will not hear that voice. You won't hear it. So be encouraged. What else does this text tell us? Notice what else it says. Go back to Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, For thus says the high and exalted one, his transcendence, his glorious status is what it's communicating. It says, who lives forever. And I think this is what the ESV says, who inhabits eternity. 
who inhabits eternity. What a wonderful picture. And then it says, whose name is holy. Pause there for a moment. So a name, a name is important. Um, Psalm 103, it tells us, Oh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So his name is a statement of his purpose, of his person. A name is incredibly important. This is why we see so often throughout Scripture, and they named him, and they named her. It was a statement of something. My name, in one sense, Carl Anthony, Carl because of my father's brother, Carl, after him, to sort of honor him, Carl. It it meant something. And so his name, holy. Holy meaning what? As Isaiah saw, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And as we sang earlier, only a holy God, only a holy God can make all things right. Only a holy God can save. Only a holy God delivers. Only this God. So what does it mean that he is holy? It means that he is distinct, that he is other, that he is absolutely perfect. He is the, really the representation of what is pure and what is right. This is God in his holiness. And this is why men, when they think properly about God, they Fear when they come into contact with the holiness of God. Do you agree with that? And this is why if you ever see anyone that claims somehow that they have seen God and his holiness and they can continue in a normal mode of life, they have not seen a holy God. I've heard some of these crackpots that have said this over the years. Well, I saw God and he talked with me. You have not seen the God of the Bible. You've not. He is holy. But yet, but he would have anything to do with me? But yet, when I was a fornicator, he sought me? But yet, I was an adulterer. Yet, I was a liar. Yet, I coveted. Yet, I was religiously lost. And yet, he would have anything to do with me? And whatever your sin was, you can put that blank in there. Yes, and I lusted and he sought me. I was prideful and he sought me. And he allowed me to travel this highway of holiness to him. And he was traveling on a road towards me. This is an amazing thought. And I think if we understood passages like this better, our churches would be better. They would be healthier because you would have Christians in these churches that have a proper view of God, a high view of God. And with that high view of God, it puts life in perspective. And then we can encourage one another, even in our relationships, to fight the tendency towards self-reliance. Any of you here ever rely on self? Hmm. Hmm. No, a high view of God. You know, I've been asked this question. I've heard it asked several times in different ways. Um, you know, why is the universe so vast and we only experience really a, a, a microscopic portion of it? I mean, really. And this is why some people want to think that there must be life elsewhere, and so they want to spend billions and billions of dollars and so much research to try to discover there must be life somewhere else. A little minuscule planet Earth. 
in the, middle, in the middle of a relatively small solar system, a small galaxy, then there must be something else. No, God has us in the middle of this vast universe as a declaration of his transcendence and his glory. And in fact, his name is holy, and he wants us to see, oh, what a great and powerful and awesome God he is. Therefore, when I receive this salvation, I can say, what a precious gift coming from such a God. Amazing. Let me think about large stars. We, last week, our fellowship group, we were away in the high desert in Newberry Springs, just past Barstow, and we had our retreat there, and we went out at night, and there was uh, hardly any glimmer of the reflection of the moon. Not a cloud in the sky, and we went out, and it was amazing. There was the Milky Way, which you generally don't see around here, do we? Because there's so much light pollution here. And we're looking, and there were shooting stars. It was an amazing thing. And at that time, I think it must have been Uranus that was, it was beautiful seeing it. And then you could look here into the sky, and with the naked eye, you could see Andromeda, another galaxy that we can capture with the naked eye. Did you know what is it? It's Cephei, considered to be this, perhaps the second largest star about 5,000 light years away from us. And if you were to take that star, and if you were to take it and place it in the middle of our solar system, setting aside our sun, which is absolutely minuscule in comparison to it, that star would reach as far as Jupiter in our solar system. And I think perhaps even beyond Jupiter. Perhaps it may even touch Saturn, and perhaps even beyond Saturn. A star... Now, I pause for a moment and ask you a question. Uh, what does the scripture say uh, God has done to the stars? He calls them all by what? Name. What a great and awesome God. <laughs> we will fall short. We may try to encourage someone, but we will fall short. We will try to care for them, but we, will, we can't care enough. We will offer counsel as we should, but we will not be as wise as we should be. We will try to offer comfort to someone, and our comfort has its limitations. We will never match the God of our comfort, and that's why we must always point people to this God. Amen? So be encouraged in that. Consider as well. Um, I'm looking at my time as well, too. <laughs> In Isaiah, you see constantly these statements of the I am's of Isaiah. I am, I am, I am. Let's look at a few of them. Go with me. This is a great declaration. He says in Isaiah 41, 41 verse 4, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, I am the first and the last. I am he. I am he. I am the one. Notice, if you will, Isaiah 43, verse 3. It says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One. There is that idea again, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. I am the one who does this. Verse 10, what does it say there? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. 
before me. There is no God for, and there is none after me. Verse 11, I, even I, am Yahweh. Notice verse 13, even from eternity, I am he. Notice verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. And on and on, these statements of these great I am's. And what's beautiful about these I am statements, if you were to connect them to the New Testament, I believe that you connect them more readily to the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ says, I am the what? Say one of them. Amen. I heard all of them perhaps even at once. Now, some think that, well, when we think about John, those I am statements take us uh, right away to Exodus 33, 34. I am that I am sent you. I think John's stop is first Isaiah. As he borrows from Isaiah. He's saying, I am the one that's from eternity. I am the one that is holy. And of course, its basis is the statement in, in Exodus, but it is Isaiah that declares, I am a God of all power and knowledge. I'm the one that dwells in your presence. I know every detail of your life. And think about it for a moment. If he is the God who numbers every star, surely he knows every detail of your life. Isn't it amazing how sometimes we can go through life and we begin to wonder, does God know? Is he aware of what I'm experiencing? Does he hear my heart? And this is why many people do stumble and fall because they say to themselves, even recently in a conversation with a gentleman in Maryland, I was there visiting and, and went out with a fellow pastor and we were out golfing and they paired us up with two gentlemen and one um, is a, a professed atheist. And we got into a conversation with him and a very interesting conversation. He twice a Yale graduate. Yale undergrad, Yale um, law school, but we were engaged with him in this conversation. And one question that came up, which is often asked of people who do not see this God, if God is so loving and so great, why is there suffering in the world? And for about five or six holes in between, weren't too many birdies that day, uh, (laughs) a couple bogeys and other things, we were talking about that. But when you understand that this God is transcendent but yet imminent, you can rest in that. That's why Spurgeon said that when he thought about the providence of God, that that was the pillow in which he could rest his head each night. So you can rest well knowing that this God who says, Sefe, eh? This star? It's minuscule. Look into the heavens. I name them all. Aren't you fully aware that I know every detail of your life? Why should we be encouraged? Be encouraged because of God's statement of his humility. Notice if you will go back to Isaiah 57, 15. And what does it say there? So he is lofty, he is transcendent, he high, exalted, holy. He dwells in a high and holy place. He is the one that is in eternity. There is no beginning to end to this God. But notice what it says. Be encouraged by the statement of his humility. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. Just that. Just pause there. This is a statement of his humility. He he dwells with them. Yes, he dwells in a high and holy place, but also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. 
from the beginning of creation, God has sought to dwell with men. But since the fall, what has happened? It's been reversed. Since the fall, man has sought to discard God. And what does man do? They devise all sorts of ways, all sorts of substitutes for a relationship with the living God. But yet God has shown his humility in that he would dwell with men. He would take account of men. I mentioned before that I passed it for some years before returning to Grace Church, actually 21 years that I did. And uh, I went to one church that I planted and was there 14 years in the next church was a revitalization, seven years. It's a church that had a long history. The church had been there for 80 years and a wonderful location and, and other things, but it was veering uh, theologically, and I thought that's what the Lord wanted me to do. And I, I went to that church, and there was a pastor there before me, um, and unfortunately, he was there before me. I'll put it that way. Um, and some people told me about some of the things that he had said. And one thing that he said in one message was this, and it still troubles me to this day, although I first heard it many years ago. He said in his message as he was preaching, and I understand that he, he did it with this sense of conviction. Uh, I suppose people can be convinced of their error, but nonetheless, he said this to people, God needs your love. Do you like that statement? Does anyone like that statement? No, no, you should not like that statement. Needs? A God who is, for thus says the high and exalted one, who dwells in eternity, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, and I need? He needs nothing. God is a great sufficient God. He is self-sufficient. He has no need of our fellowship, no need of our love, no need of our allegiance, no need of our worship. He has chosen to allow us to do all of those. Amen? And that's what we should consider. No, there's no need in the living God. And this is another way in which we should say to ourselves, what a great God. Because what did Christ say? He was, the scripture tells us, Christ was face to face with the Father through eternity. Christ talked about returning to the glory which he had before. Um, John chapter 5 talks about this Trinitarian love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, They represent perfection. If one has perfection, we don't have any other need, do we? No. But yet he chose. Here's a third consideration. Encouraged by the statement of his purpose. His purpose. Notice what he says here. Here we see the merging of transcendence and eminence. Now, in the mind of some, it's, it perhaps is incompatible. However, with God, it's, it's perfect in his design. And notice what it says here. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God comes to save. We see this God that is transcendent. He, he is a God that's in eternity, but yet he invades time. We see a God who is in the heavens, but he comes to earth. We see a God who has absolute holiness, but yet he would seek after sinners. Well, with whom does he dwell? Well, notice what the text says. There are conditions that are placed here. Those that see their need. How do they see their need? The spirit of the lowly. Realizing that there is a need to build up, verse 14. There's a need to prepare the way. I am in need. I am undone. My righteousness is, in fact, filthy rags. 
And Israel didn't see their need. And God was saying to Israel, socially, you need to stop the injustice. Politically, you need to get away from these false alliances that you have, thinking that somehow these other nations will save you. I'm the only one that can save you. Theologically, they needed to change because it's this idea, why are you serving these false gods? Go back to the old ways. You know, there's a song that, you know, it's not terribly popular anymore, but I suppose it used to be which the line in it, of course, simply saying, give me that old-time religion. Now, some of you young people are like, what is he talking about? I don't old-time religion. What is old-time religion? And it really was just a message of saying, you know, the thing that was good enough for Paul and the things that were good enough for Peter, and we would say the thing that was good enough for my grandma, the things that were good enough for grandpa, it's good enough for me. And really what this song is essentially communicating, the things that are foundational, why do we need to change them? Do you not believe that this word is sufficient? Amen? Do we not believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he died for sinners? Do we not believe that every man is born a sinner and without the divine intervention of God they cannot be saved? Absolutely we believe that. Do we believe that there is a literal heaven and hell and those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ will spend an eternity separated from God and there will in fact be the words from the one who spoke the most precious and dear words that anyone could speak. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said it will be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you believe that? Yes. This God has no need of anyone's love or worship or recognition, but he is so chosen when he spoke the universe into being that I will create these creatures and they will inhabit this small, minuscule planet. They're stars that are as large as their own solar system that I have named, but yet I'll save them to those who are lowly who recognize their need. So this is why it does away with pride. He is always opposed to the proud. You see this in chapter 2. Look with me at chapter 2 of Isaiah. And what you see in Isaiah, either one is going to be humble or they will be humbled. You either will be humble or you will be what? Humbled. Isaiah 2, then even in verse None, it says here, so the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased, but do not forget them. And I, I love the wording here. Notice the second part of verse nine, and the man of importance. And it's given, it's not in the original, but this is the sense of it in context because a person may think I am someone of importance. I have means, I have status, I have recognition. Even that poor soul that was out on that golf course and time to time, even when I think about him, I pray for his soul. He has this career that was excellent. He has his degrees that were notable, but yet if he meets the living God, none of that matters, does it? Not at all. And it goes on to tell us throughout chapter 2, verse 11, 12, 17, we see it again in chapter 10, 33, that one will be humbled by God or either they will show humility. God is a God that looks to the humble, but also the contrite, the contrite. Notice what it says here. 
um, and to revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite really can be translated crushed. One scholar said it means to be objectively crushed, which may mean there's some sense of remorse. Have you ever come to grips with your sin? And when you come to grips with your sin, you feel what? Oh, crushed. Even somehow you feel something inside of you. There's this sense of remorse. I have let the Lord down yet again. And I mentioned me being saved right there on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. And I came to grips with my sin. And the moment that I came to grips with my sin, I literally cried. And here is this big guy. I mean, at the time I was in ROTC getting ready for the military. I was a linebacker. I played linebacker for the odd name, Bearcats, but nonetheless. But in that moment, my little weightlifting and my other skills... None of that mattered. I was crushed because God had allowed me to see what my sin had done. And I was in tears and I cried out. And this is all I said. I said, Lord, take control of my life. And I walked out a new person because a God who is transcendent became very much imminent for me. And by his grace, he allowed me to see my sin, whereas before I did not. A scary moment in my life is that I had I realized earlier that I didn't really know the Lord. And listen to this, listen to this. I said to myself, to my own wicked soul at that time, yes, I know I don't know Christ, but I'm not ready to change. Mm. My. So I'm encouraged by this text. Because I've lived it. And if you know the Lord, you have lived it as well. Our God is a great God. (laughs) So your vain attempts, he says, to Israel to rescue yourselves, they'll come to nothing. Men's vain attempts to rescue themselves will come to nothing. And why? Self-righteousness will always fail. Why? Several reasons. It robs God of his glory. Because it's an attempt to gain recognition that is only due of God. Why? Because it is another testimony of the, your condemnation, the worth of your condemnation. What do I mean by that? Because when you try to please God apart from God, it is a, a reflection of the sinfulness and the pride of your heart. I will do this. I will come to salvation, but I will come with money and I will pay when it's the servant who's done it. Why is self-righteousness wrong? Because it's an affront to the cross. It's saying of that suffering servant for whom we read earlier from Isaiah 52 and 53. Yes, you will be crushed. Yes, you will be marred but I would do it myself. If it is not by grace, let me say this, if it is not by grace, then it makes God a horrible, perhaps even a sadistic father. Because one has to say, then why the brutality of the suffering servant? If you were to read Isaiah 52 and 53 again, Uh, If it's humanly possible, then why marred, why despised, why forsaken, why grieved, why crushed, why oppressed, why afflicted, why cut off, why scourged?
because you couldn't do it yourself. And this is why it says in 52 and 14 that he was marred more than the sons of men. Marred. Brutalized. Beaten. Even the wording can even communicate this sense of mutilated. Then why, why would you do this to your only begotten son if men could do it on their own? Just let them attend church. Let them volunteer their time. Let them pray. Let them help their fellow man. But it is not possible, is it? No, it's not. Be thankful this morning that God rejected your self-righteousness and clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Be thankful that he rejected you. Be thankful that he said no to you. And he said yes to Christ. So be encouraged, of course. A God that is great and awesome. And so many other things that one can say about who he is. But yet, would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why would he do it? So that you could come without money and without cost and be saved. <laughs> wow. I need to learn to put the silent button on that thing. My 55 minutes is up. The Lord is good, is he not? Praise the Lord. Thank you for allowing me to share these words with you. Let me pray for us all. We thank you for your grace, Lord, your kindness, which is everlasting. Help us to live this out. In Christ's name, amen.